0: Welcome to Ground Control Parenting, a blog and now a podcast created for parents raising black and brown children. Why Ground Control Parenting? Because we're not trying to be helicopter parents, but we do need to be on the tarmac, that ground-controlled crew, making sure our kids have what they need for a successful takeoff. I'm the creator and your host, Carol Sutton Lewis. My daughter and two sons are in their 20s, and I've been writing about parenting and education issues for more than a decade. In this podcast series, I'll be talking with some really interesting people about the job and the joy of parenting. Our guest today is my good friend, Suzanne Kay. She's a writer and an award-winning filmmaker. She's mom to her son, August, who's 19, and her daughter, Sydney, 17. Her mom, the beloved and celebrated actress, Diane Carroll, was the first black woman to star in an American television show in a non-stereotypical role, Julia, which we all know and love. Welcome to Ground Control Parenting, Suzanne. Thank you, Carol, so happy to be here. Uh, It's so great to have you here. Although I've known you since college days, it's only been in recent years that we've had the chance to talk at length about your absolutely fascinating life and your parenting perspectives, especially when raising children of color. And so let's start with your backstory to borrow a writer's phrase. So you're biracial, your mom was black, your dad was white. Can you talk a little bit about where and how you grew up and and how your parents talked with you about race? Well, I was born in New York City, my mother
1: and father, um, until we were, I was seven, we all lived in, in the city. They were divorced already. My father lived in the village. My mother lived in the Upper West Side. Um, my mother was really exploding as an actress back then. She was on Broadway. Yeah, I had a big group of family and um, friends. But then something happened in 1967. <laughs> um, my um, mother was offered this TV show. And of course, you know, as a black actress, as any actress, you do Mm -hmm. not turn that down. So off we went to Beverly Hills. I feel like that Julia. Julia. That was was Julia. That was Julia. I feel like that should be a TV show in and of itself. You know, black girl goes to Beverly Hills. I mean, just ridiculous. (laughs) The princess, my mom, don't raise a child in Beverly, Hills, a black child in Beverly Hills. Are you (laughs) kidding me? Um, but anyway, that's That's what happened. And two years after we arrived, my father was offered uh, a television show for his client, who was Flip Wilson. Mm -hmm. And he was going to executive produce that show. And Flip didn't care whether they shot it in New York or L.A. And the family lore was that my dad moved it to L.A. so that he could be near me. And so within two years, I had both parents out there. Um, My mother in Beverly Hills, my father bought a house in Malibu and then later in um, Hollywood Hills.
0: Your average black American story. (laughs) So, so in, in New York city, you had, you had black community around you, you had family, and then you get to Beverly Hills and, uh, what's, (laughs) what's it like and, and, and how different an experience was it for you? You know, I didn't realize
1: until more recently. I'm now working on uh, writing a book about a lot of this, but I did not realize that that was such a pivotal moment. But it was. I mean, any extended family no longer around Beverly Hills, so no other Black people around. So it was a real adjustment. And um, and my mother and father were both very busy at the time. So,
0: yeah, yeah. yeah. No, I you you've talked about um. That it, so you have talked about conversations that you had or didn't have with your mom about race when you were little, <laughs> and so when you were in New York, you sort of I imagine had a sense of people that looked like you and you know. But but um, how was it to get to um, Beverly Hills and then um, not have had uh, a, a conversation? I mean, maybe you could talk a little bit about what you mean by not really having a conversation about race. Yeah, I
1: think my mom was of the school, which, you know, Carol, you and I have talked about this, maybe this is generational, where you just don't talk about it, you're going to arm your child by giving her education, exposure to the world, you're going to model for your child the sense that you can walk into any room and own the room, and Lord knows my mother did model that well, (laughs) and she believed that that would give me enough, that would arm me, Mm -hmm. Um, plus she was really, really busy, so it's both. I'm not going to take her completely off the hook. I think that was her, her idea of what was best, but also she just was overwhelmed as a mother. And so, so, but it didn't work. It just didn't work. It doesn't work in my opinion. And I think we know that better in this generation. Um, Mm -hmm. She came out of Harlem. She came out, you know, she knew who she was. She knew what she was up against. Mm -hmm. Um, She and her mother and her father were kind of, allies in this struggle. They understood what the struggle was. So mm-hmm. mistakenly, she thought she could, I don't know, buy me protection or something, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and and educate me to have protection. And it just is completely untrue. I mean, not in this country we live in. I mean, that doesn't work. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but, you know, you've talked about this in terms of the celebrity aspect, Also added a level of um, I think you said it clouded it a little bit because you were I mean, she was Julia and she was this instantly recognizable star in Hollywood and you were her daughter. And so she perhaps thought that that, too, would sort of insulate you from any kind of um, issues with race.
1: Yeah. I think she did. I think she made that mistake as well. I think it. I call it exceptionalism. Isn't that what we call it when they, they'll take some of us and they'll say, Oh, we'll, we'll accept you. You're good. And so that kind of BS was, you know, but as a child, when you're raised with that, it is very confusing. I mean, first of all, there's, who do you really care about when you're speaking to me right now, my mother or me, there's that issue. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then on top of it, there is the, um, if I, you know, what exceptionalism does, it's one of the sick, sickest psychology things I can imagine. We'll take you despite you being black. I mean, there's nothing more discussed, you know, right. Right, So, um, so it's a horrible set of messages. And because I did not have the extended family and I didn't have a sense of, of, of what it meant to be black in America, it just made me think something was deep down. I'm sure I assumed something was wrong, you know, Mm -hmm. So it took a long time and it really, um, you know, my poor mom, she had, I just, there's no playbook for this. Uh, There's no playbook for parenting. There's definitely no playbook for raising a black child in Beverly Hills. There's no, (laughs) there's no playbook for being the first generation to succeed. And then how do you, you have your next generation feel that what they do matters. There's a lot of things. You're just winging it as a, as a parent. Um, so she was winging it and. Some she did right and some she didn't.
0: So I just have to step in for a second with a little plug. And that is exactly why we are doing this podcast, because there is no playbook. But we now have enough information that we can make a playbook (laughs) because there are people can learn from experiences. I mean, with hindsight and with um, uh, thought and and care, you can see what she was very well meaning, but what she could have done differently or what. And so and then turn. You will do that for your kids. But before we get to your kids, please recount for me the story of when, when you were, what, third grade at, at the in the Beverly Hills School?
1: When, in El Rodeo, Beverly Hills School. I was, yeah, I was about in third grade. Um, you mean when Harlem came out in my right. mother?
0: <laughs> when, you, when you saw that despite her ability to rise above, she also had the ability to sort of head back in when she needed when to. When she needed to, <laughs> right. Which is why she
1: was okay, you know. Right, right. Um, I know there was some little boy at school. I think he was the son of someone who was a producer, so my mother would have known the parents, a very successful producer, I think. And he called me the N word, mm-hmm. and so I came home and I told mom, and um, I knew enough to tell mom. I mean, there was that <laughs> clarity. Right, <laughs> <laughs> tell my mother, and um, so she drove her. I don't know if it was at the time a Bentley or a Rolls Royce because she switched <laughs> over from one to the other. And a few times she would take me to school. Normally I'd say drop me at the corner. I am. I would be embarrassed. But this time I didn't say anything. She illegally parked it in front of a fire hydrant. Um, She got out and she asked me to point out the boy and I did. And she took off her stiletto (laughs) and she chased this boy (laughs) in a circle uh, around the property, you know, in front of the, in front of the school. And it was a beautiful moment. Like that boy never, ever, he didn't even speak to me. I was there five more years, I think. (laughs) He couldn't even look me in the face. So yeah, I mean, you know, there were times when I knew she definitely had my back. Um, There was no doubt that my mother could
0: fight if she needed to. (laughs) Um, Your father, did he talk to you much about race? I, I remember you saying that he was really, I had a lot of friends in the black community and was kind of estranged from his family. Yeah. He didn't talk about it either. I think in many ways,
1: you know, there can be that parent who sets the tone. So he was, if my mother wasn't going to talk about it, then he wasn't as the wow. white parent, maybe. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, he had, he came up in the jazz world. Uh, he ran nightclubs. He actually ran uh, Birdland at one point and Royal Russo big in the jazz world. And his family was extended jazz musicians. He always felt, even though he was Jewish and grew up in Brooklyn, he felt closer to black jazz musicians. And then when he came out West, he still had a very mixed group of friends. Our home had everything and because they were entertainers or a lot of black people in and out of the house, mm-hmm. but it was just never discussed. And certainly I don't think he was the one who could have helped me figure out how to be a black woman in the world.
0: Right. <laughs> but,
1: but um, I did know that he thought I was beautiful and I did mm-hmm. know that he loved me. That helped quite a lot
0: yeah. for my confidence. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. No, you know, something just occurred to me. When when we're talking about your mom's perspective, um, clearly we can see now how that wasn't all that helpful to not talk about it. But it's very interesting in light of, um, I don't know if you've been following, I imagine you probably have been, that there's all these Instagram accounts now, but from being put up by um, current students and former students at private schools around New York and around in boarding schools, and they've been posting anonymously their microaggressions and sometimes big aggressions of racist racial incidences that they've been um, that they that have happened to them while they were at school and really it is part of the healing process to be able to talk about them but sometimes when I look at some of the things they've been writing my instinct is I know you were hurt by this but it doesn't sound like that big a deal and if and if we're all gonna really parse out every slight we're not rising above it. I mean, we're getting, we're getting stuck. And so I, I kind of get, although I know it's not the right way to go, the concept of what doesn't kill you makes you stronger, just keep going. But, but, but it clearly from your story and, 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 and I know that now it's more important for people to be able to speak their minds, but it's something, um, there is this sense of, you know, are there times when you just sort of, um, fix in your mind that this isn't going to affect me? I think you
1: can do both. Mm-hmm. I think we're at a time in society where we have to call this out. Absolutely. And it's, mm-hmm. it's more to try to uproot systemic racism than anything mm-hmm. else. Mm-hmm. Our children, we hope by coming home and telling us anything mm-hmm. that's happened to them, um, have the resilience. I think that's part of what our, you know, we, we, we are our survivors, all of us. And generationally, we've been taught resilience. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's something sometimes overly pampered uh, kids at my daughter's school. She goes to one of these Upper East Side schools that you're talking about. And she's very much in this fight right now uh, mm-hmm. dealing with mm-hmm. this. But, you know, it. I like what it's done to my daughter. I mm-hmm. like that it's given her the sense that she can impact the world, that her voice matters, that the school has to pay attention. I like that message for mm-hmm. her she's mm-hmm. not broken by the things that she's heard or ha- or experienced. That's mm-hmm. the difference. I don't think it broke. Uh, you know, some of these girls it did really, it depends on what happened right, to you. Some right, of these right, girls are, right. are absolutely uh, badly impacted. Um, but in other cases, maybe not so much. So maybe the smaller incidents you're talking about mm-hmm. doesn't break our girls, mm-hmm, but they, mm-hmm. ha- they should bring it out because if this place is ever going to get where it's supposed to be, mm-hmm. These people have to see the smallest to the largest aggressions, the micro to the largest one. So that's how I see it. I don't think it's they're calling this out because they're broken by each incident. Mm-hmm, I think mm-hmm. they're calling it out because it needs to be pointed to for yeah. the white community, actually.
0: Right, right. No, yeah. actually, I think that's a really good point. Yeah, I, I agree with you. Um, so, And speaking of your daughter, I want to move now to your children. Oh, but before I do that, there's one thing that I want to just ask you to comment on I know you went to Wesleyan, that's how I met you, and you got to Wesleyan, and you had that proverbial moment, that biracial moment <laughs> in the cafeteria. <laughs> Can you just sort of talk through, um, and hopefully this is our generation and not the next generation? I hope it is, and I think it may
1: be. It's the quintessential, at least for our generation, the quintessential biracial moment. I walk into the cafeteria and... There is a section of tables that are all black and there's a section of tables that are all white. And for the first time, because I went to a little crunchy granola boarding school in Northern California where I'm, you know, i mixed with black kids, Iranian kids, and there were some white kids too. And they kind of sprinkled into our group and we were all together. But the first time I walked in this cafeteria, I realized, oh, you have to make a choice. (laughs) There is a choice to be made here. And, um, so one funny thing that I did, so I did both, I immediately went over and sat with the black kids and then I would sort of scoot over to the white kids sometimes. (laughs) And, um, but one funny thing that I did was there was a really, uh, pretty black girl who was from the West coast. And, uh, the buzz the freshman year was that Diane Carroll's daughter was on campus somewhere, but no one knew who she was. So I pointed to that girl and I said, I think I've heard that's her. And I, (laughs) I bought myself a couple weeks. (laughs) <laughs> of being able to create relationships without the whole celebrity thing in there. And then eventually they figured it out. But by then I kind of knew who I liked and who I wanted to be friends with.
0: So. <laughs> that is great. <laughs> so let's move on to your, your children. So you got married, you married a white guy, you had kids and, but the really, the interesting twist here is that you, they began much of their early, early years were out of the country is is that they were yeah. born yeah. here, but, how they were they? out of the country. My
1: youngest was born in South Africa. My oldest was born in Los Angeles. And when he was three months old, we left the country. We came back when she was in second grade and he was in fourth grade. We came back to New York. So a lot 10 years there, um, they were overseas. But you did jump over pretty quickly the fact that I married a white guy and I had a black boyfriend on campus, a Ghanaian boyfriend on campus and a white boyfriend on campus. I will say that there were a lot of years there where not having that sense of being rooted in being African-American and being black, that really messed with me. It mm-hmm. was not a good thing. It, it definitely confused me on campus. I didn't see it until later. I didn't see the pattern, but I was searching for black community most of my young life. Mm-hmm. And it was incredibly important. And it took me a long time for me to feel rooted in that again. Yes, I'm very international. Yes, I've lived this unusual life, whatever, and I've traveled. But if you don't know who you are and if you don't understand it, in relation to this country and the true Mm -hmm. history of the... If you don't know that, you're just lost. You can't Mm -hmm. use all of your gifts, Mm -hmm. I feel. So it was a long journey for me. And Mm -hmm. um, yes, I did get married and I went overseas with the kids and they were raised in a very international home.
0: You know, Suzanne, what you just said just raised one more question for me. So what's interesting is that see you on the street, you would say, oh, there's a beautiful black woman because you're more your mother's complexion and you present to most people as something. I think I present (laughs) black pretty clearly. (laughs) And and I guess the the postscript is that your children present less so, but I wonder how much of your experience was colored, pardon the pun, by the fact that there was no doubt that you were a black girl. I mean, to anyone. Right. I, I, I wonder if that made it even more difficult for you because how you felt versus how you were perceived may have been two different things.
1: I, you know, I think that celebrity thing got in there and messed it up quite a bit. Mm. Until I moved to Atlanta when I was working at CNN, it was the first time I was exposed to real colorism in the black community. Honestly, I promise you, it was the first time I understood (laughs) colorism. It was the first time I sensed that there were black men. This is what I sensed. There were black men who were attracted to me, partly fascinated because I was somebody's daughter. There was that. Mm -hmm. But they they would prefer someone lighter than me. I was shocked. I was like, my mouth fell open. But I didn't, I didn't know that that was so deep in the community. Maybe it's getting better. I don't really know. But having grown up in Hollywood and having grown up in that celebrity bubble where everybody made such a big fuss over me because of my mother, Mm -hmm. I just didn't get that whole other thing. You know, all that light, dark stuff. I just didn't get it as much. So anyway, I think the bubble made it confusing. So I knew I was, I didn't really think in terms of biracial or anything. I was so focused on how do I create my own identity with a mother who was so famous. Mm -hmm. And that was just my issue. And Mm -hmm. I think, Mm -hmm. you know, and eventually I realized that race was deeply my issue, but I didn't see the connective tissue there for a long time.
0: Mm So,
1: yeah.
0: So back to your children, they are growing up overseas, and you guys lived in London for a time. And, and it was in London that you had your epiphany as a, <laughs> as a mom, as a black woman with children. <laughs> I mean, you've said you kind of decided that you really want to find out more about your history. How did you do it? And, and what You know,
1: I was trying to figure this out. I was thinking, um, what year was Obama elected the first time? Do you remember? He was elected in 2007, and then he took office in 2008. I'm wondering if it had a correlation because I was trying to remember when this started for me. When Obama became president, I can still cry about it. I was sitting in my apartment uh, in London alone at night because it happened. It was late for me in London. Mm-hmm. And um, my then husband and I were not sharing this experience. I was so sad that I wasn't sharing it with my mother and my grandmother uh, mm-hmm. who was not alive at that point. But the fact that this was our his- this was our moment and we were not connected. My mother and I were estranged. I have to say that's a part of the story is mm-hmm. my mother and I were not close for decades. And then the next day, I took my daughter to her international school, which was, you know, no black. I don't think there was another <laughs> black American there. And it was a very conservative, a lot of bankers, kids, I think. Anyway, nobody was rejoicing in the way that I felt <laughs> they should have been rejoicing. And I just thought, what is going on? This is a moment in history, and and I didn't have anyone to share it with, that may have coincided with this Mm -hmm. deep dive into who I was. I don't know if that's true Mm -hmm. or not, but I just started ordering books and eating them. I was just, you know, consuming the history that is not taught at Mm -hmm. these private schools that, you know, um, or any schools in America. (laughs) And so um, I began to just read and read and read and read, and not just, I read slave narratives, but also just stories about the the um, amazing accomplishments and the resilience and people you know creators and scientists and and you have to search these books out. <laughs> and, um, yeah. <laughs> you do, and I began to build an understanding of what it meant to be Black American. And anyway, that was my own little research. And then I came to America with my kids.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so this is what I love. I love the evolution of parenting because when you have this epiphany, you could see clearly that you didn't want to do what your mother did. I mean, you, you now have the tools and you really want to use them. And so you dove into making sure your children's experience when they came back to the States was going to um, look different and feel different than yours. So tell me about sort of your mission when you got them to schools. <laughs> the first thing I
1: knew was having gone to these primarily white schools and I know how they educate, They guess I had the advantage of knowing what the curriculum was going to be. What my kids were going to be up against in terms of learning history, this version of history. And I know what it's like to go into these schools. So, and not, and and you don't want to feel alone. Now, my daughter, as you said, she, I guess, looks light, but that's not the point. I don't care what color she looks like. It's who Mm -hmm. she is. Mm -hmm. So I made friends with all the black families. (laughs) I mean, I just, I, you know, I was coming in late. Most kids come in, their families come in in kindergarten. My daughter was coming in in second grade. I just made friends with all of them. And I understood that, um, you know, she wasn't going to love everybody, all, every black peer there, but she was going to get an opportunity to bond. And, and so that made a huge difference. I had no doubt she was going to find white girlfriends. Was it all, was at all primarily white girls <laughs> schools. She, right. That was not going to be a problem, <laughs> but I wanted to make sure that she had those bonds. So, and it worked. It really did. I mean, that it, it, those things carried her And I did a lot of other things. It's been an ongoing journey of um, just giving my daughter and son a sense of who they are. Now, the truth is, my mother was in California, so she couldn't really participate that much. Mm -hmm. She was beginning to decline in her health. Mm -hmm. They spent time with her, but she was struggling, and it wasn't wasn't you don't create these bonds with the grandmother this late in life very easily. Mm -hmm. So they understood. By the time I was done with these four trips, they kind of knew, okay, my grandmother was famous, you know, this is her career, these are the awards, but I don't think they could really deeply understand what that meant in terms of overall American history. You know, her school took her to the Apollo one year and she went up to the whoever gave them the tour and said, oh, that's my grandmother on the wall. And then the woman went, what? You know, and, and she began to sense early on that it gave her a little cachet. <laughs> So, you know, so she kind of got into the the fun of the of having that celebrity, but I didn't think she was still understanding, you know, the real history and what it meant. I've been working slowly with both of them. um and I told you, I recently felt like, yes, I've done it. <laughs> you know and it and our country has helped a lot. Going from Obama to Trump it was very right. helpful, right um, and right. <laughs> and to see, you know, That, you know, what's happening right now and that your children actually in this age group, it's becoming cool to be active, to be politically Mm -hmm. aware, you know, it's changing. So there's been a lot going on in the country that's helped me awaken them and talk about these things. Mm -hmm. But it was I was determined this was not going to (laughs) Pass along to another generation that she didn't, they don't know who they are, so they know who they are now.
0: I, I think that the re- there's a really important takeaway even for parents that aren't raising uh, biracial children, because you know, it, it, as 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 a parent who had children in predominantly white schools, you have that circumstance that they may not have a lot of black friends around them uh, anyway, and the the ability to say I'm going to I'm going to impact this now, not I'm going to make sure that my child is friendly with that particular child, but I'm going to make the effort to put him or her in an environment where a lot of people look like them. It makes a difference for these children. You have to work. I mean, you have to not force people to be friends when they're not going to be friends, but you have to put them in the environment. You can't just sort of sit back and say, oh, it's no, no, (laughs) it'll it'll organically. You cannot. I mean, you can't do that
1: much anyway, as a parent, exactly. Much of it, the behind-the-scenes kind of, you know, pulling of strings to some degree, and and giving them opportunities to see things. And mm-hmm. if I'm going to put them in a school where they're going to be around kids who own a block on Park Avenue, I have to also show them that this is not the most important thing in the world. How do I show them that? How do I expose them to enough things? How do I, you know, everything is very conscious. I think mm-hmm. one of the things that happens with a lot of white parents, and I could be wrong, but they come into the school, and this may not be true of, you know, maybe white Jewish parents, but you come into the school and you just kind of, uh, you swallow the culture whole, the
0: Absolutely. school's culture.
1: Well, I don't aspire to that culture, so, and I don't want my daughter or son to. I want them to take away from it what is useful and there's a network there. That's if this, that's probably one of the most useful things of those schools is right. the network. But none of it works if you don't have your own point of view, you don't know who you are, and your view isn't broader than that school. If you think the be-all and end-all is to go to the Hamptons and then ski into Aspen and then come back to the school with the same people you go to school with, you go to the Hamptons. <laughs> if you think that's the world – if you yeah. don't know, you know, and I, I remember hearing Michelle Obama recently talk about this. I mean, your kids have, and I know this because I was handed too much. Your kids have to feel a sense of their own grit, their own value that they you know, that's a lot of work to do when you give them this ridiculously privileged environment. So, um yeah, all of it, you have to be a conscious parent.
0: it is. you do. And you said that so well, and I, I really it it so resonates with me because, so many of us are, 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 are not from generations of, of wealth and privilege or resources, and there is a temptation to say, well, I didn't have this when I was growing up, and now they have it, and so their lives should be even better. If you don't think consciously about what world you are giving to them and how they are handling it. It, it can backfire. It can, it can spiral backfire. downward. Yeah. It really can. And so, what I love in your story is it's the evolution of parenting. No matter when it was that you came to this, <laughs> you came to it born of your own experiences. And you're just like, okay, I'm going <laughs> yeah. to fix this. I can fix this. I know going to fix this.
1: Who's better to fix it than someone who's been through it? I mean, that's the advantage I had over my mother. She didn't go to these kind of schools.
0: Mm-hmm. And so,
1: you know, and she was working. Just you know, working just to keep going. So yeah, I I was really clear on it, and I don't I don't um, accept all of the values of the school that I put my daughter and son into. That's mm-hmm. it, that's very important. I really do not ex- love all these values at all, and I and I don't think they're healthy, and I don't think that they create the most interesting, fulfilling life for my children. Mm-hmm. So I have to constantly point that out to them. Is how I felt, you know, and they could roll their eyes and do whatever,
0: you know, do all that. That's exactly right. And, but as you say, there are advantages. I mean, I, I, I've always said, don't check your child at the door and then leave them in there to figure it out. But there are advantages to being in these circumstances. It's not like, um, the answer is not just pull all your children out of these educational institutions that can really open their minds and give them a lot of access to a lot of stuff. It's, reorient the way that they are in it we have to give them the tools you know they're consuming
1: whether it's education or whatever but you want to be conscious consumers of all of it and the and the other thing is um you know we accommodate as black people we've always if you're in those environments you're always having to in the past anyway and i'd still you know yeah. accommodate um it's the same thing for you know girls for women mm-hmm. you know I, I think my mother's day she had to act a certain way i always say when I'm mad at her, I would say, you know, I was raised by a white man. Your, my mother was a white <laughs> man. Like you, you learned the system, <laughs> you gave the system, you understood how sort of focused and they didn't let a lot of emotion get in the way, you know, <laughs> white men and successful white men. And she learned to emulate that, but you don't want that as your mother is all I can tell you. <laughs> but, but you know, uh, she had to give up a lot. She had to. She had to suppress a lot of what was, I think, female about her, female wisdom, and sometimes had she had to push down. And of course, some things about being black, she had to push down. So the next generation, what I'm trying to show my daughter in particular, is. What you want to be is true to yourself and use and have access to all this stuff as much as possible, you know? So as a woman, you don't want to walk in the room and do exactly what the man does. Then you're not bringing a different script. You're not using your wisdom. We already had to emulate white men. That's how we got in the door. But Mm -hmm. now you need to, now that you're through the door, you're going to need to do something different. provide something different, not just for yourself, but for all of us, because it's
0: we need women leaders. We don't need women who right. cop, men leaders. <laughs> right. No, exactly. Exactly. I'm, we're going to wrap up here. I just have a couple of questions for you on on being the parent of biracial children. Um, and that is, so the, in, in their instance, their father is white and his family's white and he didn't grow up in a black community, I'm assuming. Is it, is it tough at all to sort of meld the two worlds, particularly now, do you have a sense that it, it is different in any way? Or, um, I mean, I guess you mean it's good then my, that, then my experience, was, Yes, then you are, right. Then, then your
1: experience, yes. You know, I mean, white people are obviously not a ubiquitous group, um, you know, that there are white people who just really stick their head in the sand when it comes to race. So you can have yeah. someone who loves you. But they don't understand. Uh, th- they can't talk with him about a lot of things, not just race. Um, so it depends on who the white person, the other half of the family is. If you have some mm-hmm. white people who really, either they're at least aware of that and they can at least talk about it or bring their ego enough down to say, this is teach me or something, right? right if that's right, not right, the right. case, you have a more difficult situation. Uh, mm-hmm. And I'm not going to say which is which because I don't want to talk about
0: um,
1: But I will say that my kids, are really in tune with what, um, w- what are the issues of the day and being black is a big part of how they can be a force for change and they're mm-hmm. proud of that. And they can not necessarily discuss it with everybody in the family, so that's okay, they understand that, that's fine. I mean, ideally, you would have a family where you could talk in more depth about these things, but there are ways
0: to accept people where they are, I guess. And yeah, I mean, be true to who you are. One thing that's becoming very clear in recent weeks, in the events of recent weeks, is that a lot of white people do not know how to talk about this stuff. <laughs> and so the the ones that care are looking to people to help them figure out how to talk about it. So, I mean, certainly I, I expect and hope that more comes out of it than that, but that is actually some progress, that at least there's some effort being made to try to figure it out. Is it important to you at all um, how they think about their mate? I mean, if if in, in, in terms of... Um, not necessarily whether they are with a black person or a white person but if they if they ended up sort of by virtue of whoever they're with, assimilating into a culture that's not Black? I mean, does that does that matter? I mean, I know in some Black yeah. families it really matters. It, what but. would
1: matter to me is if they lose, and I don't think they will. I've been working so hard at this, but I, <laughs> I don't want them to join with anybody and lose themselves, period. And mm-hmm. it's even more of a challenge with, historically, women have done that. So mm-hmm. I do not want that to happen. <laughs> um, and include, you know, part of not losing yourself is not losing the Black part right. of yourself. I mean, so... If they had a mate who couldn't even come up to that level, who couldn't, Mm -hmm. you know, in one way or another um, enhance that, you know, just be part of that, then I would be very worried for a lot of reasons. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, and are there white Americans who can do that? I don't know. I don't know that age group that well yet. I don't know where they're, how far they will have come. I'm Mm -hmm. sure they would probably be able to find a white partner who's much further along in that area, in which case... Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm go, go ahead. I'd be fine. (laughs) But that's my criteria. It has Mm -hmm. to be someone who embraces all of you. And that includes you being black. And if they can't do that for many reasons, they're not the right person for you.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's great. So I'm going to wrap it up here, but first I want to say, thank you so much, so much. This has been a great conversation. I really enjoy talking to you. I'm sure parents listening are able to take away so much. You've been really rich with content and I appreciate that. So thank you, Carol. As as we wrap up, though, you have to do the GCP bonus round, and we'll make this quick. You have to tell me your favorite poem... Uh, My favorite
1: poem, that wasn't even hard, it just popped into my head. It was given to me, uh, Roscoe Lee Brown, I remember him as an actor, my mother's close friend from many, many years ago, uh, gave me Renaissance by uh, Edna St. Vincent Millay. It's a long Ah. poem. I highly (laughs) recommend it.
0: I love it. Yeah. Okay, great. I will take that out. Okay, and your favorite two children's books, they can be what you grew up with or what your kids loved? Uh, I always loved Where the
1: Wild Things Are. Mm-hmm. I bet you get that a lot. <laughs> I love that one. <laughs> and I loved, um, secret garden when I was a little bit ooh, older. Ooh, I loved ooh, that book. Yeah, no,
0: absolutely. And then finally your favorite TV or film parent. It's oh. so funny. Cause I really
1: went blank. I don't know. I mean, I'm blank <laughs> on that, um, but I'm supposed to say Julia. <laughs> well, was she, a, was she a mom? On, that's right, oh yes, I guess. She yeah, She had a mom raising a boy. I and a whole sorry. Thing.
0: Yes. I forgot.
1: So, like, <laughs> That's probably the the answer I should say. I think because I grew up around that world, I don't remember being too enamored of, I knew behind (laughs) the scenes too much, so I didn't fall in love with any of these TV
0: dads or moms too much. That is a very fair answer. (laughs) Really fair answer. Okay, Suzanne, thank you again so much. And I hope everyone listening enjoyed this conversation and you'll come back for more. So if you like what you've heard, please subscribe, rate, and review where you find your podcasts and tell your friends. In the meantime, please check out the Ground Control Parenting blog, www.groundcontrolparenting.com, for tons of parenting info and advice. And you'll also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Ground Control Parenting and or LinkedIn under Carol Sutton Lewis. Please send comments and questions on any of these platforms because we really want to hear from you. Take care and thanks again. <laughs>